Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I'm joined by William Kalush, who is the director of the Conjuring Arts Research Centre in New York. The Conjuring Arts Research Centre is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to the preservation and interpretation of performance magic, including the science and history of playing cards, mentalism, ventriloquism, juggling, deception and sleight-of-hand tricks. The centre serves performers, historians and collectors by offering an extensive library of books and periodicals. It aims to provide the world's most expansive collection of material related to conjuring. And it's this unique library that we're going to talk about today. Welcome, William. Hello. How are you, Richard? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining us. I've actually been looking forward to this interview all week. Excellent. Yeah. All right. My first question is a a daft, maybe a daft question. The name of the research center, Conjuring Arts Research Center, it doesn't refer to magic tricks or magicians. Is that because the Conjuring Arts is your trade profession name? Uh, Not so much as uh, it's a little nicer sounding than something like Magic Tricks Research Center. It's also broader. There's, we called it arts as opposed to just Conjuring Research Center because, as you mentioned um, in the intro, there are lots of affiliated and uh, sister arts that are relevant, and we do collect and offer materials in those fields as well. Okay, okay. I was sort of thinking that, essentially, Harry Potter and Merlin are magicians, but you are... You're, you're in the performance conjuring arts business. That's right. We don't really, we have some books that might cross over a little bit into the other, other realms, but not, uh, that's not our focus in any way. Our, we're, we're collecting books about performance, also books about psychology, deception, uh, practice theory, things that a magician or somebody researching magic or magic history uh, would find useful. All right, so perhaps you can describe what the library offers. I presume it's more than just instructional books on how to perform a certain illusion or a trick. That's right, that's right. There's lots of um, method books. We have thousands. I think we have around 15,000 books at the moment, um, and many tens of thousands of documents and papers and things of that nature. And some of it is purely historical. Some of it with many thousands of letters between magicians. So they'll talk about all sorts of things. So there's biographical material. And then we have many, many books that explain methods. And then we have books on theory. We have books on crooked gambling because the psychology of that is uh, is relative. And the methods are... uh, are relevant to magicians. So that would be so, uh, card counting you see in movies in Las Vegas. Well, card counting, yes, a little bit, but I'm, we're talking about overt cheating. I mean, um, switching cards and, and things like that okay. uh, that you see in the sting. or yeah. uh, And then there's lots of people that do those things. So it's very interesting to us because they're not, it's not magic, but it is closely related. Okay. And... How did the research center come in, come to be? How did it uh, start? Well, one of my key mentors in my life was Ricky Jay, 
and I got to know Ricky very well in the mid '90s, and through a friend, a mutual friend named Michael Weber, who who he knew I wanted to meet Ricky, and he knew Ricky very well, so he arranged it. And Ricky could be very difficult. He could be the sort of guy that if he didn't like you, you might never hear from him again. But I was very fortunate, and he he didn't dislike me, so we became quite friendly. And I started doing research into magic history, and I was doing it at the libraries and the public libraries, etc. And I found it a little, after a while, it became a little cumbersome. So I started to buy books for myself that would be useful for my research. And one day I woke up and realized I had about 10,000 books at that time and thought, well, why don't I make this easier for others so they don't have to go through this like I did. And we turned an office that I had into a nonprofit. We, we filed papers with the government, turned into a nonprofit, and hired librarians and started cataloging the material and acquiring more and making it accessible. So it all started with your personal reference library. That's right. That's right. Um, so if a, a working uh, magician or uh, illusionist was to walk into the library, um, what would they be able to acquire? Would it be knowledge to do new tricks or improve something they were already doing? If, if they wanted that instructional element, what, what would they do? Well, we have our catalog, uh, for the most part, available online, so they can search out the books they might want to read. So maybe they're interested in a certain aspect, a certain kind of magic. They can look through our catalog and see what they're interested in. And then they would make an appointment, and they would come in, and we would make the books available, just like any research library would do. And they can take notes and, and work on their material. But sometimes people are working on a PhD or a master's thesis, or they're working on a script for a movie, or we're not... We don't uh, limit people to what the purpose of their use is. They don't have to prove to us that they're going to use this for some publication or, or anything like that. The only real limitation is that they need us. If you, can, if you could get the information just by going to a magic shop, uh, you're better off doing that because our resources cost us too much in time and, and, uh, and effort. But if, if you want to see things that, that are really much more easily accessed here, then we, we make all welcome with an appointment. Okay. Um, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the history of the conjuring arts and tricks in, in books. When did people start writing them down? Well, uh, some of the earliest are Hero of Alexandria, which is about the second century. There's more in the Refutations of All Heresies by Hippolytus, uh, which I think is about the third century. Uh, these are tricks, uh, heroes explaining methods to do little um, scientific tricks that are quite clever, quite interesting. And uh, as, it, as you could probably tell from the title, uh, the Hippolytus book, uh, Refutation of All Heresies, he was a church father, an Antinician father, and he was talking about people that were doing uh, heretical things in the Christian church, uh, using tricks, and he described some of the methods. So some of those things are written down a really long time ago. Uh, there are manuscripts that, that uh, it, there are tricks in manuscripts that exist uh, prior to Gutenberg, quite a number of things. Uh, there are accounts of magicians performing in early literature. 
There's there's a, an account of a magician that's disputed. Some magicians say it's not really a magician like us. Some say it's not a real story. But it goes back, um, I guess, close to 5,000 years uh, to the time of the, of the Egyptians were building the Great Pyramids. So that's by uh, Didi of Destinefru. And he, there's an account of him doing uh, quite clever uh, tricks. There's no methods given, though. Right. So those kinds of things happen all through history. We just have to find them. And I guess something as simple as juggling must also go back thousands of years. Yes. And in fact, the term in English and in other languages, it's a very similar term, um, for, for doing what we call conjuring or magic tricks, uh, was, was called juggling up until the late Renaissance. It only started to be called magic in the way we use the term now and not as a uh, supernatural thing in the 19th century. So uh, was there ever a, or has there been a golden age for, for conjuring? I'm thinking maybe um, the Houdini era. Is that a thing? Well, yes, it is. And uh, there are many historians in magic that call that period of the golden age of magic. And the reason they do that is because uh, there was no television or radio, so stage performances via vaudeville or music hall in the UK uh, were really the only ways you're going to see magic or, or a lot of entertainment. All kinds of different kinds of entertainment were on the stage. It was a golden age for a lot of sorts of variety arts. Uh, and so there was a great demand for magicians, and so there were many, many magicians making their living. And that's considered uh, by some historians as the golden age. I, I think it's always been, we're sort of in a golden age right now. There's, it, it keeps changing, and the people, the group of young people who get involved and interested keeps changing and morphing, and it's quite vital and active right now. So I think we're in different kinds of golden ages at different at different times. Obviously, I'm British, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and at that time, magic shows would have prime-time slots on a Saturday evening, and millions of people would tune in to watch people like Paul Daniels. That's right. That's right. There were some great ones. Tommy Cooper. I mean, this, this is a guy whose who's, uh, content still stands up. Do you remember him? Yes, died on stage. Yes, yes. David Nixon? Yeah. Yeah. Chan Canasta. Do you remember Chan Canasta? No, don't know that one. Don't know that one. He was a he was more of a, a, a pseudo psychic sort of a very very clever performer. Magicians really look up to him because he was so clever. Yeah. But uh, uh, there were some great British ones, and I grew up in the seventies as well. And and we had uh, Doug Henning, who was very important and influential, and and David Copperfield came, was right behind him, and. Uh, there was a great period, but now it's changed quite a bit. You know, uh, television magic can be divided historically into two periods, uh, before David Blaine and after David Blaine. Yeah, so I was going to ask about that. He's turned it into sort of almost a, an event. He turned it into a whole new art form in a way. Uh, there had been magicians that sort of did what he's doing, but on stage, where he would bring, people like Nate Leipzig would bring a committee on stage because he knew that the large audience, you know, in a large venue, all the audience couldn't necessarily see everything, so they'd have people on stage kind of representing the audience. And David did that, 
David Blaine did that on television. He he focused the camera not just on the magic, but also on the uh, response of the people that were there, adding credibility to it. And you knew it couldn't be a camera trick if you're watching people watch the magic as well. And it was brilliant, and it's kind of changed everything on magic is <laughs> on television is now uh, basically derivative of what uh, what David's done. Right, right. I've got another silly question, and it, it seems like a contradiction to me, but um, isn't it strange that conjuring tricks are written down at all when you always need the audience to never understand? Well, we have an old uh, axiom that if you want to hide a great secret in the magic world, publish it, because there's so much published that you couldn't possibly go through everything. No one could. And it is true. It's, it's, a, it's sort of um, uh, counterintuitive to think that magicians would write down their secrets, but some of the best material were written in manuscripts uh, in the Gutenberg era, so in the, maybe the 17th century and later, but the material that was being printed in books was not nearly as good as what was being written in manuscripts and just handed from master to student, etc., uh, now that's changed. Of course, there, there is a lot of um, books printed. but So a books is a great place to go and find all kinds of material, rare and old things and not so old things. And, and I can tell you that the, a huge, probably a majority of what we have in our library from the 20th century, you wouldn't find on a books or you you'd rarely find it because it's it's mostly published by magicians for magicians and you won't find it in major libraries so because small, small print runs it's all super small if you don't know even for us things get, get things get published and we don't necessarily find it because there's so much going on and it's not through your main publishers in any way so uh it's still relatively hidden even though it's printed you wouldn't be able to find it right okay so back to your library um what's the rarest book or artifact or or perhaps the most valuable uh, item that you have in there well it's hard to say because valuable is relative to the beholder and if it's as a good friend of mine bob lund used to say when people would ask him the value of his collection he said well it's not for sale so i guess it's worthless and uh you know he's joking of course but uh as far as the rarest thing we have, we've got a whole lot of things tied for first because we have a lot of unique material. And I don't mean that in the, the way it's sometimes used as a, as a qualifier meaning rare. I mean unique in the sense that it's the only example known to exist. And we have a, a great number of books from the 16th and 17th and later centuries uh, that are the only copies known. So there's no copy recorded that's at the Vatican or the British Library or the Library of Congress or, or any place else. And so you can't really get rarer than that. As far as important material, we've got a wonderful book from Naples um, from uh, 1617 that was, uh, the book actually performs. It's, it's not only a book, but it does a trick, which is very clever, by Aratio Galasso. How do you mean? Is it like a pop-up, movable, movable parts book? No, it's not a 
it doesn't move, but you you do things with it. The magician uses the book, and somebody thinks of something in the book, and then the, the book helps you, the magician, secretly uh, right. understand what they're thinking. Okay. And so that's the only copy known, and it's like I said, you can't qualify unique, but not only is it unique, it was unrecorded. There, there hadn't been a copy in anybody's library that's ever been recorded, so... Uh, we managed to find this, and it was very exciting because we didn't know very much about Galasso. He, he had printed one other book in 1593, and that's also known in only one copy. So it's, uh, it's quite important, uh, quite valuable, especially to us. Uh, and we have a lot of, like I said, magicians' letters, and those are almost always unique. There's sometimes a magician or any, any writer of a letter will keep a copy, but usually there's only one example. We have a lot of that material as well, archival material. Okay. And in terms of uh, mainstream uh, uh, magicians, Harry Houdini, does he have his own section in your library? We don't have a section for him because to keep things organized, we uh, very strictly keep things uh, cataloged by author. So the, there's no section of books on Houdini, and there's, a, of course, we have many, many books on, on Houdini. Uh, but we, we can find all of those very quickly by our system, our, our, our catalog system. But we have a great deal on Houdini, and we're very interested in him, although that's not a, a focus of our collection. There are other collectors, like David Copperfield, who has a tremendous Houdini collection. Uh, it's... I think I wrote in a book that I wrote about Houdini, I wrote that if he came back and saw Copperfield's collection, he could practically just start his show back up. Hmm. Um, so I have to come back to, to Ricky Jay. Um, so I wasn't familiar with him growing up, but when I came to A Books many years ago, I learned about the Ricky Jay book, Cards as Weapons, and uh, it was out of print and had been so for many years, but I could see many people searching and buying used copies of the book. Mm -hmm. Why is this book, and why is Ricky so important? Well, I'll start with Ricky himself. I mean, Ricky was a national treasure. You know, we lost him last year. He passed away yeah. um, about a year ago. But, uh, I mean, he ch personally, he changed my life. I was watching a Doug Henning TV show as a, uh, I think I was 11 years old, and I'm on, on the floor of my friend's uh, home, watching. we're both watching this TV show, and, uh, and Doug's doing these wonderful illusions, uh, and he introduces Ricky Jay, and he comes out, he comes out, and I was already interested in magic, of course, at that time, but when I saw what he could do with cards, my interest immediately turned to card magic. I thought, this, now this is really something special. So years later, when I met him, it was, it was extremely uh, important for me personally. But he's, he's broken such new ground because he's in the way of Houdini in a sense, but he, he's not only a great performer, and he truly was one of the greatest, uh, he also was one of the great historians and had a tremendous amount of knowledge on... Uh, all kinds of subjects related to magic and tangential to magic. And he also was a great collector. He has a wonderful collection of, uh, of, of incredible things on, on gambling, deception, on circus, on magic, on all, all sorts of related fields. 
So that book was Ricky's first book, Cards as Weapons. I remember reading it as a kid, and uh, our, our school library had a copy. And uh, I just thought that was a, a wonderful book because it was funny, but it actually did talk about history, but it also taught you some technique of throwing cards, which we like to do as kids. And because it went out of print, it has, and, it's, and the demand has gone up, the price has continuously gone up as well. And I think it's a function that everything Ricky has done is in demand, and it's just whether the supply is there. I think you might also notice, Richard, if you look into your records, people are searching for the last book Ricky did, which is the, the book on Matthew Buchinger. And that book just came out a couple of years ago, and they printed many copies, but because of a dispute with the publisher, uh, the book went out of print, and now copies are selling for a fortune. Who was Matthew? Matthew Buchinger was Ricky's favorite subject um, in his collecting and his research. He was a little, a little man with no legs or little stumps of legs and, and no hands. He had little stumps for arms, and he did amazing things, including great calligraphy and great um, drawing and engraving, as well as great magic and did trick pool shots, trick bowling shots. He could. He, he fired a, uh, a long gun and did trick uh, shooting, and he was an amazing guy. And Ricky did a great book on him that was also part of a... It was done at the same time as he did an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York of all of his collection, the greatest collection in the world on this guy. So... Uh, that book by book, um, by Ricky on Buchinger, I can't think of the exact title, um, is in great demand as well. And it's just a matter that the supply isn't there. The right. demand keeps going up and the supply isn't, so the prices have gone crazy. Okay. So you mentioned about uh, this being a book that... Um Card Cards as Weapons was a book you read as a young person. So today, if if a young boy or girl, maybe 10 years old... Uh, wanted to learn about conjuring, what would be a really good book to introduce them to your to your profession? The best book I could think of, the two really great ones, but one that's, I think, uh, outstanding, is a book uh, called The Secrets of Alcazar. And it's by Alan Kronzek, and it's written very cleverly. Uh, it teaches... Uh, magic for young people in a way that really teaches them the important parts of magic. It's not just about learning tricks. It's about understanding performance and about understanding showmanship and all the things that go into making a magician, more than just learning the secret of a trick. And it's, a, it's, it's written in a, a, at like a dialogue, and it's a great book. Uh, that, that would be the number one I would suggest, which you can still find. I think Dover's kept it in print for decades. And the other would be the magician's, uh, the amateur magician's handbook by Henry Hay, which is also a great book. And I'm not sure if that's in print anymore, so that would might be a little harder to find. But the the secrets of Alcazar is absolutely in print and a great book. So when you talk about performing, you mean like, like the stage presence. Uh, communicating with the audience, telling jokes, maybe what you wear, as well as actually pulling off a trick or, or an illusion. That's right. All those other parts that go into it. You know, just like a salesman. If a salesman 
has to present themselves in a proper way, and if or the the person that they're they're trying to sell something to won't take them seriously. And a magician, it's a similar thing. I mean, showmanship and salesmanship are very similar and very related. So that book teaches all those other aspects. And in, in a way that any young person, 10, 11, 12, maybe even a little younger, um, can, can understand it. I'm thinking again of Tommy Cooper, of him getting it wrong again and again and mm-hmm. again, and the audience is almost in pieces, and then at the end he pulls it off. He was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Totally unknown in the U.S., by the way, but yeah. absolutely brilliant. Uh, uh, there's been some great, uh, both uh, British conjurers as well as in, in our world of the kind of a, um, more of a, a closed world, uh, there's been some great Scottish conjurers. There's been some brilliant people from Scotland that have done, uh, just uh, really changed things in the magic world. Yeah, I think it's slightly different in the UK that many uh, magicians come through um, having performed in in like northern working class clubs. We have a really uh, tough working class audience who probably had quite a bit to drink in the evening. And you've got to work with that crowd and pull off your trick and be funny. So I I think a a lot of them come through on that that stage um, background. I think you're right. I mean, it's trial by fire. If you're not good, you're not going to last at all, not even one evening probably in many of those places. I mean, you think about how the Beatles, uh, they had to, they, they really made their, made their bones, as they say, uh, in, Ham- in, uh, in, 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 in small clubs, yeah. right? In yeah. Hamburg and, you know, people that were, you know, they weren't, they weren't there to see the Beatles necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Lovely, lovely. So, back to books. Um, our final question, which we ask everybody, and that is, what book or books are you currently reading? Mm. I'm, I'm reading the, autobi- the, the biography, not the autobiography, the biography of Charles Dickens by uh, Chesterton. By G.K. G.K. Chesterton. Yes, G.K. Chesterton. Now, I I read a lot of books that are not necessarily related to magic, but in many ways, a lot of non-magic books are related in some way. So I read a broad broad category of things. Uh, I don't think I'm presently reading any any magic books, believe it or not. But... uh, so Dickens is obviously apart from thing. his um, his writing, he appeared in public a lot to read, including he came across the Atlantic. I seem to remember. Uh, are you talking about Dickens? Yeah. Yes, I think he did. He came. He came here and was. I think. Uh, I think he was. He was warmly received, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And he was a extremely famous. Um, he was a superstar in a way during his lifetime. I mean, he was a he was a, a fascinating character. That's the kind of person I would have liked to met. And I think he was a a real person. He wasn't um, uh, wasn't standoffish. I think he was. Uh, I think it's hard to to understand him from reading his books these days. But I think this this book's helping me understand uh, Dickens a little bit so better. You, you enjoy. Bible. And he had quite an interest in magic, by the way. Oh yeah. 
Uh, remember the paper household words that he put out? I mean, the, the quantity of writing he did, the amount of writing he did is just incredible. But there are things related to magic uh, in, in that writing, and I think he had a, uh, as, as, uh, as some other famous writers also had a, a distinct interest in magic. Oh, yeah, which ones? Well, I'm thinking of uh, Carol Lewis. Lewis. I mean, Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll, yeah. So I he, uh, he definitely had interest in magic and, and uh, particularly mathematical recreations, puzzles, things like that. Right. Smashing, smashing. Okay, uh, William, that's all we have time for this week. Um, it's been really interesting hearing you talk about the library and conjuring arts. It's been really educational. Um, William Kalush is the director of the Conjuring Arts Research Center in New York. Um, the Conjuring Arts Research Center is mainly for the use of practitioners and performers, so it, it's not really open to the general public, but the, the website is super interesting. Um, and it's been fascinating hearing about it today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you very much.